Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello. I'm Charles Sims, your host for In Social Work. In 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Declaration's 30 articles outline 24 basic rights afforded to all people simply because they are human beings. Eleanor Roosevelt served as chair of the United Nations Committee that drafted the document and 48 countries, including the United States, signed that original declaration. In the years since, most countries of the world have signed on to these rights. Further, there have been a number of additional documents that have extended or clarified the rights outlined in the original declaration. Our guest for this podcast has spent more than 60 years advocating for these human rights. The Reverend Canon William L. Whipler, Ph.D., D.D., has served as a priest, missionary, human rights advocate, and scholar working with more than 80 nations and more than a dozen international human rights and service organizations throughout the world. Following his ordination to the Episcopal Church in 1955, he served for eight years as a missionary in the Dominican Republic and for two years in San Jose, Costa Rica. Upon his return to the United States, Dr. Whipfler worked with the National Council of Churches Latin American Department, first as its assistant director and later as the department's director. He then went on to establish and serve as the first director of the National Council of Churches Human Rights Office. In 1992, he was appointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury as the Associate for Human Rights with the Anglican Office at the United Nations. Dr. Whipfler has authored or co-authored several books on human rights and edited the National Council of Churches Latin America Newsletter and Human Rights Perspectives, as well as a collection of statements on human rights and justice. Additionally, he has written numerous scholarly articles for a variety of journals and lectured at colleges and seminaries, religious institutions, and non-governmental and community agencies in the United States and overseas. For his service and human rights advocacy, Dr. Whipfler has earned awards and recognition from organizations such as the United Nations and the governments of Chile and Brazil. Dr. Whipler has served as a priest in many churches throughout New York State for more than 40 years. He currently serves as associate priest in a local parish in western New York State. In this, the first of two episodes, Dr. Whipler begins his discussion with a definition of human rights. He explains how he came to the work of human rights advocacy and talks about some of his accomplishments. He also identifies and discusses the work of a number of organizations that address human rights issues. 
Dr. Whipler describes how some policies and legal decisions made in the United States have led to the infringements of the human rights of people in other countries and how that would provide a rationale for other groups or nations who would violate the rights of others. He goes on to comment on his belief that one way to prevent human rights abuses from occurring is by holding those responsible accountable. Dr. Whipler was interviewed in April of 2015 by Stephanie Sacco, a MSW student and graduate assistant for global initiatives at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. You served as Associate Director for Human Rights at the Anglican Office at the United Nations. The Director of Human Rights Office, which you helped create in the National Council of Churches, on the Amnesty International Board of Directors, and have had various roles doing direct work and advocacy on human rights. Having developed and implemented a program of human rights advocacy, edited statements on human rights and justice for the United States government and other organizations, having testified at agencies, committees, Congress, and other locations and groups regarding human rights, and having extensive experience living abroad and working for human rights abroad, how do you define human rights? Human rights is actually not something that one defines in terms of those two words. Human rights really is a whole process, has been a long process. It is a state of being of people who either are experiencing the full play of their human rights are not under certain conditions, social, economic, uh, even direct political interference with those rights. And I would say that uh, human rights are everything that's outlined in the Universal Declaration. It's freedom to be. It is freedom to be certain things that have uh, that are high principles of life, and it is also freedom from. There are some very specific things, freedom to have privacy, freedom from government interference in one's daily life, freedom from torture, freedom to vote. So when you look at human rights, they really reflect the way in which society, the governments that we choose, well, may not choose, to run our societies, uh, or to at least uh, lead our societies, act how they act in this process of letting us have the fullest life possible. So when I talk about human rights, I can refer to definitions, Universal Declaration, which has 30 articles in it. I can refer to our own Constitution, which has some very clear statements in regard to our rights, especially the amendments to the Constitution, which are very specific. But I think it is an action word rather than a being word or a phrase. It is human rights, but do I have them, don't I have them, how do I fulfill them, are they limited, and so forth. I mean, it's not just a listing of the thing we call rights. Right. There have been some very important international agreements that go into incredible detail. For example, 
there is one covenant that has been signed by the United States and most of the members of the United Nations, member states, against uh, the use of torture or other inhumane treatment of persons. And it's on the books. Tragically, the United States made a lot of exceptions. Mm. In, and that is in violation of the agreements that the United States not only had the president sign, but which were then put into U.S. law. So they are as much U.S. law as those that are just framed and designed and passed by our Congress. And that's a very important thing that people need to understand about the questions of rights. Yeah, that it's not about the words, it is about the actions. That's and right. Sure, a government organization it can use all the words that they want to define and establish their idea, but if it's not being put into practice, then what does that actually say? Exactly. Could you describe some of your most memorable experiences in advancing human rights causes? For example, instance, where lasting progress has been made and what helped facilitate that success? Well, I became involved in human rights issues, I guess, in regard to my own life. Missionary in the Dominican Republic from 1955 till 1963. And uh, when I went with my bride to the Dominican Republic, where our four children were raised, there was a dictator, Rafael Trujillo, who was an uncontested tyrant. There was no, I mean, there are phony titles. There was somebody who was always called the president, but in the background was always this generalissimo Trujillo. And there was, at the time I was there, the beginning of opposition. It was very small. It was very fragile. But at one point, when Trujillo was assassinated in 1961, in May in 1961, his two sons and two brothers decided to take the power that they thought they could retain and uh, became even harsher. And I got on a death list in November of 1961. They were going to eliminate opponents people who were talking about democracy and justice and so on, the opponents of what they considered their rightful place in government. And um, I found out about it. It was November the 19th during that year um, when about a 1,000 people were on lists all over the country. And some very responsible and democratically oriented officers in the Air Force arrested all of the secret police before they could carry it out. So at an early stage in my life in the Dominican Republic, five years into my life, I realized that talking about democracy and freedom and equal rights for everyone could lead to pretty dangerous results. And so that was my earliest experience, and it was personal. Later, when I was directing the Latin America office at the National Council of Churches, we began to receive and so did the U.S. Catholic Conference. Ours was made up of Orthodox and, and Protestant churches and U.S. Catholic Conference, Roman Catholic. They were receiving, and I was receiving, uh, personally written reports of torture by the victims that were smuggled out of prisons in Brazil. 
And it was the beginning of a very significant change in my perspective as to what the appropriate role should be of my office. This happened in 1969. The military had taken over in Brazil with a little bit of suggestion by the United States ambassador and the fact that our Navy was out off the coast. And so the military had taken over in 64 from a democratically elected government. And um, they treated anybody who was in opposition like the most dangerous communist criminals. And torture was a regular practice. And the thing that was interesting is that torture was not used solely as a means of getting information. It was actually used as an instrument of governing to intimidate the population. Somebody would be tortured, be allowed out of prison, their neighbors or their friends would be frightened that if they dealt with them, they would have the same thing happen to them. And so we began a campaign through my office and then the U.S. Catholic Conference joined with us and we got the Latin America Studies Association, professional Latin Americanists, to become part of it. And it really turned things around in a very important way. Members of the Congress heard about it. One of the very favorite people for me at the time was Senator Frank Church. He was from, I believe, Idaho, and Senator Aberesk, who uh, was from North Dakota. And they made it an issue. They began to look into how many of our U.S. programs in one way or another supported this kind of behavior, use of torture. So it grew from making one complaint into what was kind of a basic rule, never be silent about the violation of human rights. And then 10 years after that, I was asked by my colleagues who were the heads of the offices for East Asia and South Asia, Middle East, Africa, if I would create a human rights office because they didn't know how to deal with these issues. We had a lot of experience in Latin America. They were beginning to have the experience, and that's when we began the human rights office. I want to go back to when you were talking about sort of how you went from getting these reports of torture from people that were from Brazil, right? They were in the United States at that point, or no, they had no. sent them? No, what happened was they sent, the, the first reports were about 600 that had been received by five young Brazilian students at Columbia University, mm. well, four, and then there was a fifth person who was involved who was a pastor who was in exile, and they brought them in to me and said, look, this is happening, what can we do with these reports about torture? I called U.S. Catholic Conference and I was told that they had been receiving from priests in Brazil and from people in the church there other reports. So together we had several big notebooks full of handwritten statements. And we took a case to the Inter-American Human Rights Commission and they accepted the case against Brazil. They were very nervous about it because they had usually dealt with small countries, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Venezuela. But now we were handing them a report on the biggest country in all of Latin America, and they accepted it. It took two years 
But we were getting more and more and more documentation. The Brazilian government refused to respond. And finally, the Inter-American Human Rights Commission found against them. And it was then used by members of the U.S. Congress to cut arms shipments from the United States to Brazil. So it had a very positive effect. It also embarrassed Brazil. And it was a method that we used in regard to many countries. Because the media was not covering the fact of so many people being tortured. Then in Uruguay, in Argentina, in Chile, in Bolivia, in Peru, every one of those places has a fell to military governments. Torture was part of the problem. And the other violation of other rights, habeas corpus, the right to free press, curtailment of education, a whole series of things that were fundamental human rights. And um, that was almost 20 to 25 years in Latin America of the development of these military governments. And one more quick question. How did these Brazilian students at Columbia University know to come to you? Well, they were asking at Columbia, they were asking. And one of the professors there, uh, Dr. Ralph de la Cava, and I had been talking about this problem. He's a Brazilian, a very famous Brazilianist. And, and he wasn't sure what might be done, but when these students came to him also because he was a Brazilianist. He knew that my office had far more flexibility than an academic center would mm. about trying to deal with violations, with a response to a government, with actually um, with openings among important senators and congressmen and so forth. So they came with these documents to me and then we discovered within a very few days that the U.S. Catholic Conference was also collecting these terrible reports. And that was when we went into action and started the whole proceeding against Brazil. That actually leads me to another question that I wanted to ask you. Because I think it's interesting to see how your position as a representative, a member of the church, impacted your ability to do your work. And I'd love to hear more on your thoughts about whether your role within the church was, it sounds like in, in this case, for example, helped you in your efforts. Are there other times when you found that title, that level of connection was helpful for you in your efforts or, or also times when it maybe hindered what you were trying to work on? The thing that was very important was that we, I followed always a particular I guess it would be a particular route in doing anything that had to touch the government. I am a firm believer of separation of church and state. So I had to be certain that these were not issues that were in any way for favors for the church. It was not. These were matters of justice that were part of what we called the American perspective on life, the American way of life, whatever you want to call it. And they were clearly violations of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights does not have any kind of application mechanism. It was not meant to. 
the 30 articles of the Universal Declaration were there to say, if you are going to be part of the United Nations, in regard to your citizens, these are the things that should be part of your democracy. And it was made a, uh, actually the Universal Declaration, which came out in 1948, was made a requirement of at least a statement of adherence by member states. So what we were trying to do was see that that was being fulfilled. And really stepping in to say it to the United States government, when they gave assistance to a government that was engaged in these terrible and gross violations, you were using taxpayers' money to facilitate the ongoing violation of the rights that you would never allow to have happen in the United States. So why support that government in what it's doing with military funds or development funds that get moved to other purposes and so forth? And um, the members of both the House and Senate understood that. Thank you. That actually leads me to ask you another question about the organizations that are addressing these issues in human rights. The church and you as a member of the church were addressing these human rights. Today, I'm not necessarily sure how much that level of involvement of the churches has changed. Has it increased, decreased? I think it's decreased to a degree. It has not disappeared. For example, my Episcopal church, this diocese, is a member of an interfaith committee organization against the use of torture. But we pay annual dues to be part of that group. There are 200 organizations, secular and churches, that are members of that particular interfaith committee association. So you still have engagement of the churches, but now it's being done in such a way that there are real staffs that can can investigate and bring a lot of pressure through their membership. But there are other organizations that are really very significant. In the days when we took on the case of Brazil, Amnesty International wouldn't touch that because it was working on prisoners of conscience. And it worked on individual prisoners whose rights were violated because they had made a statement of conscience and might be arrested, or they had written something and might be arrested. But they were individual prisoners. They were not whole countries. They, and the letters that were written by members of Amnesty International were about a prisoner, and it was to get that prisoner released or something like that. So Amnesty International grew its own thinking over those years. And one of the first major issues that it took up was torture, but it was some years after the churches had been engaged. You then have other organizations that appeared. The American Association of the International Commission of Jurists began to pick up the legal questions related to constitutional protections, international protections, and those kinds of things. They did it from the legal perspective. Human Rights Watch was originally America's Watch, which looked at the Latin American countries 
and really had a good staff that worked extremely well in investigation of the details of the problem of torture or disappearance or what they call extrajudicial execution, which is simply killing someone without trial, without legal recourse. And so you get something like America's Watch becoming Human Rights Watch. It became more universal. It took its eyes off of just that part of the world and began to look at things that were happening in the Soviet Union and in the communist countries. It looked at things that were happening in countries that were our allies, caused by the United States as well. Amnesty International had grown that way also, looking at those problems. There were, oh, a dozen organizations that appeared. Some of them, the greatest and longest-term organization is the Anti-Slavery Association. It began even before slavery was the problem. It's a British origin. It helped get rid of slavery in England and then pushed the United States and other countries. Women's rights became a very particular kind of concern. And so you have very specialized organizations. Kurt Vonnegut and a group of writers created a, an organization specifically for people who were in trouble because they published their opinions or published certain kinds of books and so on. Another organization appeared for journalists in particular. And it's quite amazing. It's like a, a tree that starts off with its roots and a trunk, but then the branches have just appeared in country after country. That's what's also important. Many of the countries that in the 50s, the 60s and on were dangerously uh, violating a group and individual human rights, those countries now have their own human rights organizations present. It's incredible. So it's a tree that has blossomed and a recognition that's been accepted virtually across the board. The problem still is how do you get governments that are feeling threatened or governments that are feeling not threatened but more powerful than they should, how do you get them to conform even to the things that they sign? And I'm sorry to say it, but how do you get them to not use the same kind of twisted rationalization after the United States has done it. Because during the Bush-Cheney administration, the twisting of the vocabulary to try and calling it not torture, but depth interrogation, those things were, I think, a violation of the spirit of the whole human rights movement. So speaking of the United States' involvement in torture and its justification of torture, what impact has that had on the use of torture outside of the United States? Can you expand on that? Well, there are pieces of that whole situation that have never been clarified, and that is a really disturbing thing for me because when it was learned that the United States had justified it legally, in other words, they had used the Justice Department to give them reasons why what they were doing were all okay, and when they started to change the vocabulary, they also used the uh, typical worst-case scenario. In other words, 
you justify any depth interrogation, which I still refer to as torture, by saying, oh, what if? And they, what if is always they, somebody's planted an atomic bomb in Times Square. That's the ultimate argument. But what they were, at, what they were doing when they were torturing the prisoners in uh, Abu Ghraib and, and Bagram and, and down in uh, Guantanamo was not the ultimate questions. It was, they were seeking information that the FBI already had, and they were not conferring with the FBI. One um, Muslim who was waterboarded a hundred and some times had already spoken to the FBI, and the FBI already had information from him. So that was an extreme utilization. And I believe that what we are going to see, and you know, I don't compare what ISIS does to U.S. behavior. However, the problem that the bar gets left down and allows for anything in this area and rationalizes it using legal arguments, nobody talks about some of the other things that were discovered as well. Not allowing some of the prisoners to ever have sleep, long periods of time without sleep, bright lights, loud music, constant interruptions, constant calling into their cells, those kinds of things. No one talks about that. That is torture. No one talks about these terrible contorted positions in which they were placed. No one talks about the fact that they were suspended from a rope in the ceiling and banged against the walls incessantly. No one talks about the fact that they were force-fed a very painful process. Everybody thinks that that, oh, well, they were force-fed. Force-fed is a painful process, especially the way it was done, apparently, which was to increase the amount of food that they were forced to take through tubes. Very difficult, very painful, especially if you've been on a hunger strike. And all kinds of insulting behaviors towards their own cultural and religious backgrounds. The array is great. And the fact that another entity, ISIS is not a legal government, it's not a government yet, but it gives them a rationalization in the eyes of those who follow them and even the people who are actually the victims of ISIS. A rationalization, well, the United States does it, why shouldn't we? And that's the fear. That's, I always have, the, step over the boundary and somebody is going to say, he did it, I'm going to do it. And the stepping over the boundary of torture or maltreatment of people or confinement without trial or an execution as has occurred, we're very proud of our seals when they do things. But the fact of the matter is that there are times when they do them and they would be considered that they're committing crimes against humanity, anonymously committing crimes against humanity. We do it with drones. The side effect of drones at the moment is terrible because drones, everybody thinks, oh yeah, they got one guy. And when the bomb goes off, it kills 18, 20 civilians as well. What kind of a result does that have in terms of the reputation of the United States and the attitude of another group of people about the United States.
It gives them a justification for what they are doing. And what's the point of doing that? Yeah. As a follow-up. How does this also impact the militarization of police forces? And I'm interested in hearing your thoughts within the United States, our own corrections as well as the whole judicial process and the police force, as well as abroad. I think that one of the major problems has two sides to it. We have had, and I am absolutely supportive of veterans and all that they do and did. The big problem for me is the problem of training people to be killers or to be forceful in terms of the way in which they are dealing with a problem, but to bring them back and then not give them at least as much time as you give them to learn to kill or to be violent and so on, but you, you just expect that they can go back into society with no debriefing, with no assistance in that regard. A lot of police forces are filling their ranks purposely because of the training with former soldiers. That's one piece. The United States government has surpluses of every imaginable kind. Body armor, helmets, brand new kinds of weaponry that will shoot through layers and layers of concrete. It, just a whole array which they make available to police forces. I was shocked, I went to uh, do supply work here in Western New York at a church in a community outside of Buffalo, and was shocked on a Sunday morning to see a vehicle being serviced that looked exactly like the armored vehicles with a turret on top, like the armored vehicles that you saw in pictures in Iraq or in any of the other places where we've been in combat. We've all seen the riot control gear that police forces have now when they confront uh, a crowd. And the question is, does the way in which you are dressed, the fact that you've had training in the military and now you're in a police force, the fact that you are provided with weapons that are meant for only one purpose, that you don't use very much tear gas anymore, you use your gun, is a very serious problem within the civil order of the United States. We've got to remember that we have been in a state of war somewhere since 1941. I mean, look at all the places. And we create what are aspects of state of war by the use of drones, that cross borders by the use of uh, small troop engagements, seals going in here or there or somewhere else. The declaration of war is no longer a necessity, only the identification, most of the time, of a, someone who or some place that needs to be cleaned up for our benefit. But all of those raise major human rights issues. How about the 18 people in a wedding party who happened to be down the block from a place where they were going after the leader in Afghanistan, of, of a group in Afghanistan. Collateral damage is no excuse. You cannot say, oh, that was collateral damage, but we got the guy. 
because there's a human rights issue there which we don't deal with, and that is this very significant factor of assassinating without trial. And more and more it's being done by an operator somewhere in the United States who makes his own judgments. And perhaps a low-level commanding officer approves it, but it is not something that is approved by the President of the United States. I mean, the going after bin Laden was one kind of an action in which all of the high-level people were sitting in a room and watching it occur. But anonymously, more and more people are being killed in country after country when we've identified them. And that's a gross violation of human rights. What do you think would be the appropriate response to, for example, this drone attack? As a concrete example, this drone attack that killed these 18 people, what should be done about that? I'm thinking about some of the different calls I hear for taking specific representatives of the United States government to court or trying them as war criminals. I mean, do you think that that's the appropriate response? What do you I, think is the I best way to... I think there's an intermediate thing. that I think most people only see an ultimate response. I think there's an, there are intermediate responses that have to be looked at in which persons of higher authority must be held accountable. I'll give you an example. We know that the Attorney General Holder had to make a decision about whether or not there would be any recriminations against members of the prior administration regarding the use of torture of foreign personnel and abductions. I mean, there was a combination of things that were involved that were real violations of human rights. He made a decision, and it was worded in a, we'll not look back, we're looking to build the future. The word that I was looking for was accountability. The United States taught the use of depth interrogation, if you want to use that term, torture, as I always call it, in the School of the Americas in Panama for years. Is it any wonder that the governments that took over, the military governments that took over all over Latin America, the major and minor countries that had had democratic governments were overthrown and for 20 to 25 years military governments ruled. And it was not the exception but the rule to torture, to you kill them without trial, extrajudicial execution, or worse of all, you disappear them. So it was almost justified that this is all okay there because we can do it here. And there was no accountability at any point along the way. The only thing that ever happened in the past when it has been proven that the United States was doing something that made an incremental problem of torture, teaching military how to do interrogation, getting concerned about methods, the best methods for getting information, whatever it may be. The program budget was cut, but no person was ever held accountable. When all of those documents were found at the School of the Americas regarding training and torture, one of the Kennedys, actually the younger of the Kennedys, I can't remember his name right now, um, but Bobby Kennedy's son, who when he was a member of the Congress, had them translated. They were horrendous documents. This was 96. 
nobody was held responsible for teaching the use of torture at the School of the Americas. And the result is that it can happen again in the future because no one ever was held accountable all the way down the line. The only accountability was in the fact that a program was closed and the budget was removed from the, from the national budget and something else took its place. But no person was held accountable. And that's where the Attorney General went. We're looking to the future. And the President said, there will be no torture on my watch, but how about the next President's watch? That's the problem we're faced with. No one is held accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because on my mind is going to the correction system here in the United States because the entire, what I see is sort of the basis of the justification for the way that those systems operate is, for example, I think yesterday on NPR they were talking about the death penalty. And people are trying to say that the death penalty prevents crime. We do this to one person, we hold one person accountable for what they've done, X crime that they've committed, therefore we will prevent other people from doing it. So we're seeing that happen on the citizens of this country. But when you look at what you're talking about, people that are within the government, that same principle is not being applied. That's right. It's interesting. You have been listening to the first of two episodes on the human rights work of Dr. William Whipler. Please join us for the second part of this important conversation. I'm Charles Sims, your host at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.